Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. On this episode, I bring Chaley Ridge onto the show, and this is going to be a pillar episode about mortgage financing for your rental properties. Chaley breaks down the entire mortgage lending industry and explains how mortgage lenders make their money, how they structure their fees, including some ways that are hidden that you're going to want to know about. She then talks about how unique the 30-year fixed principal and interest mortgage is as a mortgage product and why it is not available anywhere in the world outside of the United States. Chaley then talks about the fundamental differences between the mortgage lending dynamics leading up to the Great Recession of 2008-2009, versus the mortgage lending dynamics happening today in the great shutdown of 2020 and what some of those implications are for the housing market, the real estate market, and so forth. She also talks about the new mortgage forbearance provision under the CARES Act and includes some cautionary notes that you're going to want to consider before participating in the mortgage forbearance program. And then she talks about qualifications for the criteria to get your first 10 conventional mortgages. Some of the qualifications have changed and tightened and adjusted very recently. She has the most updated information here and breaks down the debt-to-income ratio, the assets, the credit score, and all of the different factors that they take into account and explains the process of getting what she calls your 10 golden tickets, your first 10 conventional mortgages and how to do that. She also gives information that you need to know if you want to transfer your properties into an LLC after closing on the mortgage. So all of that in this episode, folks, And if you're interested in scheduling a consultation with my company, Maverick Investor Group, about how to buy cash-flowing rental properties in the most investor-advantaged U.S. real estate markets, I want to offer you a free conversation with us where we can talk through your situation, your real estate investing goals, buying criteria, all that kind of stuff, and start building a relationship with you to help you build your wealth through real estate, you can get that free consultation with Maverick Investor Group. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And with that, let's get into the episode.
This is the Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Chaley Ridge. She is the owner and CEO of Ridge Lending Group. She has spent the last 22 years as a nationwide U.S. mortgage lender and loan officer, and her company specializes in lending on residential investment properties. She is an experienced real estate investor herself, having personally owned over 40 rental properties across the United States at any one time. She has worked with tens of thousands of real estate investors all over the U.S., and she has helped more families achieve financial independence through real estate investing than any mortgage lender in the U.S. Chaley, welcome to the show. Matt Bowles, I'm very excited to be here, sir. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity. I am so excited that you are here. You and I have known each other for quite a while. You have helped a lot of our clients at Maverick Investor Group get their loans on the rental properties that they're buying through our network. For years, we've worked together, but we have not had this caliber of an in-depth discussion. So I am really excited to draw out the Chaley Ridge story on this episode. So let's dive into it. Can you maybe just start way back and talk a little bit about where you grew up, and what was your path to becoming an entrepreneur and a business owner? So this is kind of a funny story. I think a lot of people, when they hear this, they, they're a little surprised by it. I think I've always had sort of an entrepreneurial sense about me. It's just been maybe just in my cells. So I started early on. I, I always had two or three jobs at any one time. It was just, I don't know why. It just sort of worked out that way. I was maybe early 20s, early-ish 20s, and I started my own business. It was a bento truck. And for those, it was a mobile bento truck. And for those that don't know what bento is, it's, uh, I believe, Japanese, literally for boxed lunch. It's the chicken on a skewer with the rice and the, the sauces and things. So I decided, okay, this sounds like something I can do. I went out and I bought an old Franz bread truck. Franz is a bakery here in the, the Pacific Northwest. I don't think it goes beyond where I am. But um, a big yellow truck, right? And I converted it into this bento truck. Got a ventilation system for the, the barbecue inside, industrial rice cooker, all the whole thing. After a couple of years of this, it was okay. It was fun. I uh, made a little bit of money. I actually ended up having a, a retail storefront space as well. So I had two locations. And, you know, around 24, 25, I thought, okay, I've got to think about something else. What do I want to be doing here? Gave that up and check this out. I decided to go back to school. I was always kind of interested in medicine and became a pre-med student for a minute. That lasted about two years and realized kind of in my mid-20s that I was a little too old at that point, at least for my liking, to be such a starving student. And then introduces the mortgage industry. My father, um, this is Ridge is a second generation company, if you didn't know that. Uh, my father had founded Ridge Mortgage Services. I go to Pops and I said, Dad, listen, I don't think this pre-med stuff is going to be for me. What do you say? Give me a shot. I won't let you down. And he took me under his wing, mentored me, taught me everything I needed to know to start with. And, and that's how the, the whole thing began. He retired officially in 2005 and I was running things maybe a few years before that. 
and fast forward to today. That's awesome. How was that experience working with your father and coming into the family business? I mean, I feel like a lot of people have different feelings about that and different experiences with that. But how was that for you? Did that bring your family closer? What was that like? You know, we've always been kind of a, a pretty close knit family. Being in business together with family, friends, etc. I think uh, there's no way it can go without its own sources of, of frustration and other things that come along with it. But for us, I think it was pretty good at the time. Now, looking back, it, it ended up being a great thing. But at the time, so when you have a family business, and it was large enough that we had lots of employees, there's always thought of nepotism, right? So as a result, and my dad was always, always pushed us pretty hard. But when things were at their height, I think I felt like I got pushed the hardest so as to avoid that tag of nepotism within the office. Uh, it was great. It was great. But he rode me pretty hard. And what would you say, you know, looking back on that now, were some of the qualities or attributes or things that you learned from and took from and adopted from your father? And what would you say, you know, especially since 2005, when you took everything over, what would you be some of your individual maybe traits or attributes or things you brought to the company that were a little bit different from your father in terms of, you know, how you've taken the company from there? Yeah. Let me paint a picture first about Bill Rich. Okay. So he is the oldest of six Italian family from the East Coast, Republican, ex-fighter pilot in the Vietnam War. If I'm starting to kind of paint a specific picture, it might resonate with everybody <laughs> listening. You know, one of the things I remember him saying most to my brother and I when we were growing up is you never, ever leave the dogfight, right? You never quit, no matter what. The alternative is what? You're going to lay down and die. So no matter how hard things would get, whatever difficulty lay in our path, there was just no quitting. At all costs, we persevered. We just never stopped. He was called affectionately uh, among the group in the office, the energizer rabbit. He just never quit. So maybe that. He was also very consistent with his messaging and such a hard worker. I mean, this guy could grind like you wouldn't believe. So probably that. And I, I'd probably owe him a debt of gratitude for those lessons. You're learning them, you know, as you're kind of evolving as a human being, you're learning these things through osmosis, right? They just kind of sink in, seep in before you know it. You know, I'm a, the proud picture of uh, one of his minions. I, I think I, I carried on his values pretty well. And what is the Chaley stamp on the company, the sort of anything different or, you know, Chaley specific that you brought to the leadership once you took over in 2005 from then till today, what might be different about the company now that you're running it from back then? I think I, I smoothed out some of the rough edges. So I gave you the description of my father. So it won't be a surprise if I say that, you know, the overall politically correct movement wasn't necessarily his strong suit. He said what he wanted to say when he wanted to say it. And, you know, for Bill Ridge, people either loved him or they didn't. And maybe by a lot, they didn't. So I think I was able to kind of, uh, as another generation and capturing, I think, the best of him and allowed myself to maybe show not a softer side, 
but a, a more appropriate to business side for the people that I employ and people that we work with, all of our vendors and stuff. I'm probably not as offensive, I guess, is what I would say. Some people would, would say Bill Ridge could be offensive. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's talk a little bit about the business side of things. And first of all, as anyone knows, the mortgage lending industry is a very crowded, very saturated market. Can you talk from a business perspective about what you've done to differentiate Ridge Lending Group within that saturated market and also how you chose the residential investment property niche to specialize in in particular? Yeah, the differentiation there is really going to be about the, our niche, the non-owner occupied. And I have to give that to my dad as well. Actually, we kind of cultivated that together early, early on. I think both of us realized that the owner occupied side of lending and, and kind of a lot of work with real estate agents was very difficult, extremely competitive. And we found that there wasn't a sector really that was dedicated to the investor, the non-owner occupied side of what we did. So the more we kind of got into this, the more that we realized that we could really capitalize uh, upon it and create a brand or name that was synonymous with real estate investing, residential real estate investing. And there were networks and clubs and real estate investing groups out there. This is back in the late 90s, right? Marshall Reddick. God, that's an old name from the past. I've met Marshall. I know all those books. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we ingratiated ourselves. And uh, again, we just would not take no for an answer. And before you knew it, we were the preferred lender for, I would say, back in the day, a lion's share of those different groups. And we're traveling around the country uh, on hand to answer questions from these you know, weekend seminars. There'd be two, 300 people in a room. We'd get up and speak about the financing. And so I think that that's where we really differentiated. And it was initially kind of fell into it. But then as soon as we realized what we had, definitely by design, we just continued to grow it and turn it into what it is now. So can you explain for folks the profit model of a mortgage lending company? How do you make money? You know, how does all of that work? So I'm glad you actually asked this. Ridge is going to be a little bit different than what you'll find otherwise out there in the marketplace. So we charge our compensation on the front end of a loan transaction. Uh, specifically, we charge 2% of what's called origination. It's on the loan amount uh, up front for God and country and everyone to see on every investment transaction that we do. There's three reasons that I do it this way, and then I can explain how everybody else does it. The reasons that we charge our compensation up front is one, transparency. I've never had any problems, Matt, disclosing to my clients what my compensation is going to be. And actually, I've never been crazy about the idea of hiding my compensation as a function of the individual's interest rate, which is what I'll get into in a second. So that's number one, transparency. The second thing would be consistency. Always the same. It doesn't change from one transaction or one client to the next. And then the last reason that we do it this way really plays into my experience, right? As a real estate investor, and this assumes we're talking about a buy and hold strategy, buy and hold property. If it were a shorter term investment, the discussion or conversation would be entirely different. Okay. But for the buy and hold, it's relevant. It's the ROI, right? The rate of return on our investment and the math will not lie to us. So let me explain. So Ridge charges 2% on the front end. As a result, we are yielding what's called a par rate. I'll come back to that term par in a second. 
it means that we're not making anything on the back end of the loan. So the interest rate will be lower because you're paying the lender compensation on the front end. So if you take that and compare it to our competitors, where they're not charging any compensation on the front end, they are making compensation, obviously. But what's happened is they baked it into the loan's interest rate. So all you need to do, you have to be comparing apples to apples. Now, this is important. The variety of variables associated with any particular loan, things like loan to value, loan size, property type, occupancy, right? Owner occupied versus non-owner occupied credit score, purchase versus refi, cash out versus rate and term. All of these variables come with their own unique price adjustment. Okay. So make sure that if you're going to compare, let's say my quote rates and points with my competitors quote, no points and a higher rate, it's very important that you are comparing those apples to apples for it to be relevant. But assuming that you are, all you have to do is look at the principal and interest payment between my quote and their quote, right? Again, my points, lower rate, higher rate, no points over here. Subtract the principal and interest payments only. Don't worry about the taxes and insurance. Those are static, right? Those are going to be the same. The difference in monthly payment, all you have to do simply is take the, that monthly payment difference and divide it by the dollar amount of my points. Let's say the monthly payment difference is 30 bucks a month. Okay. Divided by the dollar amount of the points, let's say it's $1,500. Okay. I can't do mental math, but that division, I'm getting my calculator, that division, $1,500 divided by 30 gives us 50. That's the number of months in that example it would take us to recapture the cost, right? The points versus the savings monthly of that lower loan amount. That's about 4.1 years. And that's where that buy and hold strategy comes in, right? It's got to be a buy and hold strategy. Usually when our clients do that math, they're paying back or that um, break even cost versus savings is within two to three, four years, like the example we just gave. Two final thoughts on that before you know I'll, I'll shut up about it. One, it's important to comment that although it's secondary, points on an investment transaction are tax deductible. So that should be part of the discussion for sure when people are deciding. And then secondly, you know, if a client comes back to me and says, Chaley, I don't care about any of that. I don't want to pay points. I'm likely to argue with them for a second about it because I don't think it's to their advantage. But at the end of the day, I'm going to make my two points regardless, whether I'm putting it on the front or I'm rolling it in the interest rate the way everybody else does. It's really their decision to make. Right. That's very good. I mean, I wanted a detailed answer and it was important to understand how you've structured your compensation model because there are different ways that different lenders can structure their compensation model. So I think that's an important distinction. I want to ask you now sort of about the larger picture of the mortgage industry. Can you explain how the larger industry works and then also how Rich fits into it with respect to loan origination, loan servicing, the role of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the secondary mortgage market, and sort of, you know, for folks that haven't looked into this before, how does that whole ecosystem work and where does Ridge fit into that? Sure. So this is a little, it can get a little convoluted. So let me just start with a couple quick definitions. First of all, when we're talking about sort of institutional lending that most people are going to be familiar with, let me quickly explain. You've got Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, those are GSEs. Most, well, some people have probably heard the term GSE. It means government sponsored enterprise. That's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. 
And then others have obviously heard of the FHA, right, or VA or USDA. Those are housed by Ginny May. Okay, those are called Govy loans. Very important to differentiate because they, they really are two different mortgage-backed securities. I mean, they're all mortgage-backed securities, but the value and the way that they're traded is going to be different. So Fannie and Freddie, as it relates to our investors, that's where non-owner occupied conventional loans are going to fall. Government loans don't lend to investors, only to primary residents. So let's just focus on the Fannie Freddie. So that said, so you've got a borrower, somebody that wants a mortgage. You find a loan officer. That loan officer is going to be employed with either depository bank, B of A, Chase, Wells Fargo, or a non-depository lender. That's going to be Ridge or whoever else you know out there, like Quicken or who are some of the other ones? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, it's pretty obvious the difference between a non-depository and a depository bank. So there's your lender. Now for Ridge, we are a direct lender. We fund all of our own loans on our warehouse line. But unlike some, and it's usually a smaller percentage that do it this way, but we don't service our loans, right? We fund them, but we won't service them. We'll take them and package them up. And then we resell them on the secondary market, right, to the servicer that's going to pick those loans up. I would say even oftentimes people might be surprised B of A, Chase, Wells Fargo may not always service that paper, right? They may ultimately sell it as well on the secondary market. A servicer is going to purchase the mortgage back, the rights to the mortgage backed security, and they're going to pay a premium. Let's say that they pay 1% premium to purchase the rights to service that loan. 1% of the loan amount generally is what we're talking about. As a result, they're servicing that. Now there's a note holder behind them. Sometimes the note holder and the servicer are the same thing. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes there's a servicer. I told you this gets kind of convoluted. And then the note holder is separate that the servicer provides the yield, the profits to. Okay. Now the servicer might be important to share depending on where this conversation goes as it might relate to what's going on in the industry today. But the servicer, that 1% that they make up or that they purchase the rights to that loan for upfront isn't really made whole or isn't really turning a profit until somewhere around three years afterwards. Because what the servicer is paid is usually somewhere around 30 basis points a year for their work or their efforts to service this loan. And by servicing a loan, of course, it means that they are maintaining the escrow accounts, right? The taxes and insurance, they're responsible to send those off to the appropriate entities. And then they're collecting the principal and interest payments and dispersing those as well, along with everything else that, that goes into servicing, right? So the servicer, the lender, and then of course you have portfolio lenders, like a, a bank, a credit union might be a portfolio lender where they will lend their own money and they won't sell that on the secondary. They're just going to keep it in-house and service. So those are that's kind of the, the chain. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit? So I think where we are now, so you're saying that what Ridge will do is Ridge will originate the loan. So you're going to actually lend the, let's say it's a $100,000 loan amount. You're going to actually lend that. The borrower is going to close on the loan with you. You're going to make your two points on that, which would be about $2,000 on that loan. Then once that loan is funded and it's performing, you're then going to be able to sell that loan to somebody else who will take up the responsibility of servicing it and sending out the information on the monthly mortgage payments and escrowing the taxes insurance and doing all of that stuff. That's where we are with the servicer of that loan, right? 
Correct. Okay. And then mortgage-backed securities are, they're, well, they're a security, right? They can be traded. You know, you've got your your stock markets and, and let's just, I mean, the NYSE, uh, treasury, mortgage-backed securities, those are going to be the least risky in terms of what the portfolio is comprised of. Those are generally going to be the ones that trade at the lower margins for profit, but they're going to carry the least amount of risk as well. And then what is the role of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Can you talk about how they fit into this picture? Sure. Um, Fannie and Freddie, they basically, it's the federal government. They have insured these loans against default, right? If the, if the loan goes into default, Fannie and Freddie are going to buy that particular note back, right? So that insurance that they provide is why we have a 30-year fixed to begin with, right? If we didn't have the backing of the United States federal government on this mortgage-backed security, I can promise you there is not another investor anywhere on Wall Street or in the world, for that matter, that is going to offer, say, a 4 or 5% interest rate for 30 years. And make no mistake, I mean, Fannie and Freddie, a lot of people don't realize this, it's a socialist product. Fannie and Freddie, I think it was, uh, what was it, 1935, 30, I don't know, 36, 37 FDR came up with this when uh, during the Great Depression, when banks were, were struggling to make loans, they didn't have the capital, right? So in comes Fannie Freddie, federal government backing this so that people could have home ownership again. It's a socialist uh, product or program. Well, it's also really significant because that answers the question also about how is it possible? Because a lot of people, you know, the Maverick Show, we have listeners in over 130 countries. And a lot of people are amazed when they hear that you can get a 30-year fixed principal and interest loan. It just almost doesn't make sense that anyone would give that loan because it's a situation where if the interest rates go down, I can just refinance and lock in the lower interest rate. If the interest rates go up, you're stuck with it for 30 years. And oh, by the way, as inflation increases, I have to pay you back in nominal dollars, not in inflation-adjusted real dollars. So I can actually profit off of holding the loan for 30 years as inflation rises. And I mean, people just can't believe that that product is available here. So, you know, it's really important to understand why anyone would offer that. And you're explaining it's because this is backed by and ostensibly subsidized by the government. Is that right? Correct. Yes, it is insured by the United States government. Exactly right. And it's funny that you say that. And I haven't looked this statistic up in quite a few years. I should probably do it now that we're talking. But back when I was kind of doing the circuit and traveling around, at the time, there was one other country that actually offered a 30-year fix, and it was Denmark. That may not be the case now. But yes, it's a very, very rare thing. And, and people are often in this country, right? People outside of this country are so surprised that we have it. But in the United States, people are very surprised to learn that nobody else on the planet really has access to a 30-year amortized mortgage at such low low interest rates. So, Chile, with that context in mind, I want to ask you if you can talk about now that we are in a recession, they haven't officially declared it yet because they can't declare it until afterwards, <laughs> but basically two consecutive quarters of uh, declining GDP, we are basically in a recession. And so a lot of times when people think about, oh my gosh, we're in a recession, they think back to the great recession of 2008, 2009. But in fact, there's a lot of differences between this recession and the last one. And the last one 
the U.S. mortgage industry was obviously right at the epicenter of the last recession. And there's a lot of differences now, though, between this recession and the last one. And I'm wondering if you can just set that context for us a little bit and talk about, you know, what was going on in the last recession with respect to the mortgage industry and what's going on right now. I really think that from then to now, totally different set of circumstances. The housing market now, I don't think has been as drastically impacted. Now, I think it's important to say, everybody knows this, it's in real estate, it's very market specific, right? But overall, I think housing has maintained pretty well. I think we're in much better shape to recover quickly. Can you give also a little bit more historical context? I mean, especially since you lived through it and you've lived through these different eras, not just property cycle eras, but mortgage lending eras, I might even call them, you know, because in the lead up to the Great Recession and that entire collapse that happened, the mortgage lending guidelines were so much different. And the way that the mortgage-backed securities were being sold were so much different. You know, if people want to see a great movie about that or read a great book on it, you should check out The Big Short by Michael Lewis, which really goes through all of that in detail, you know, and how all of that actually happened, which is important to understand. But you actually lived through it. You were in the mortgage lending industry through it. So what have you seen, Chaley, in terms of what the lending guidelines were like prior to that Great Recession. And then in the aftermath of that, what happened to the lending guidelines that have been largely in place over the last decade that have made this quite different? Yeah, you're right. I should have commented uh, specifically on that as well. So going back to pre-08, 09, fog a mirror, man. You could have a pulse and get a loan. There was a lot of real sketchy loans being secured back then. We didn't do that kind of stuff, but just as an example... So there was something called a NEG-AM loan, okay, which basically meant that the monthly mortgage payment was so low, below even an interest-only payment, that the differential, right, between an interest-only and your actual payment, so let's say an interest-only, just interest is $1,000 a month, but your NEG-AM payment was $800, okay? That $200 difference was just being added to the back of the loan. It's called a NEG-AM. So the outstanding principal balance continued to grow. Now, while because it was such a high appreciating market, investors, (laughs) I don't know if it was unwittingly or wittingly, ultimately made a mistake in assuming that this particular asset type would just do nothing but continue to appreciate. We know what, what happened in that case. But anyway, so mortgage practice and standards were, um, when I say loose, I don't even think that really accurately depicts what it was. I mean, you could 100% stated income loans for investment properties. Okay. Think about that for a second. Zero down. It's a rental and you don't even have to show any income. That's the kind of thing that was going on back then. Yep. So, and then you had uh, real estate agents and appraisers and loan officers all in the mix, overly inflating values and it was bound to happen. I don't know that the people that claim that they predicted that both housing and lending would implode on each other at the same exact time. Now that I think was unique. I don't, I don't know if anyone really could have predicted that, but okay. So 0809, pre 0809, it was the wild, wild west, man. Anybody could get a loan. It didn't matter. It was quite reckless. The knee jerk reaction, however, as a result of the crash, right? Everybody's heard the term or most people have heard the term Dodd-Frank, In the Obama administration, they came up with a very wide-reaching legislation that went into ridiculous detail about 
what changes they were going to uh, implement to every corner of the financial sector, not just for mortgage, but as it relates to mortgage. It went from basically no qualification to get a loan to vials of blood and DNA samples, walking on water kind of stuff overnight. Now, how that impacted non-owner occupied, I feel like historically investors, when we've had any kind of retooling or big changes to legislation or rules and guidelines for mortgages, I feel like investors and their lending ability or their access to capital and lending usually tends to get hit the hardest, okay? Here's the silver lining. Here's where things are really, we're we're keen to take advantage of right now. So when everything crashed in 0809, okay, non-owner occupied went from having unlimited access to number of finance properties, right? You could have, I mean, speaking of Marshall Reddick, the guy had, I don't know, 300 properties at one point. We would do his loans. His tax returns would come over in reams of paper. It was, it was insane. Um, and and he, they, they kept lending him money. He, he qualified based on the guideline. They kept lending him money. So immediately after all that, it went from unlimited, right, to four max. Right after they, they pulled the plug, no more than four finance properties for investors. So that was a problem for us because we were investor focused and we were investors ourselves with over four finance properties. Much higher credit score criteria. And the reserve requirement went from just, you know, a few months of PITI on the subject property to six months, principal interest taxes and insurance plus, uh, well, at the time, we had to have additional PITI for every single rental property that you own. So the nice thing about that, what I'm trying to get at fast forwarding to now, we've been living, non-owner occupied investors, residential investors have been living under this sort of restrained guideline matrix right? We have to prove more than everybody else. We've got to put more money down. 20, 25% is the minimum down, much higher credit scores, all these extra reserves. Well, that's been our, our normal for over 10 years, right? That's just what we've become accustomed to. That's what's out there to get 30 year fixed money. Well, the nice thing about it is, is that we're the most qualified, most desirable loans right now being secured because that's where we're living. Now that we've seen everything that's happened in the last two and a half months, guidelines have really started to tighten. I think you alluded to that, Matt. Most of all for those govy loans, right? The USDA, the FHA, et cetera, those loans typically are going to be for the, the lower credit worthy individual. They're putting 3% down. They have lower credit scores. Those guys are really, really starting to suffer the consequences of much stricter guidelines, whereas us investors are already accustomed to living in that space. Now, while there's some little changes here and there, we're still primed to take advantage of, of what we've been living in all the while and rates are still amazing. Right. Yeah, I think that historical context is really, really important for people to understand, especially for people that weren't active in the real estate space back then, like you and I were, Chaley. You and I still remember that vividly in terms of how that landscape was back then, but with lending available so that completely unqualified buyers had to show no income, no qualifications, and they were just getting an unlimited amount of loans. And as you said, they were negative amortization loans, a lot of them, or at least they were adjustable rate mortgages that were going to reset the higher rates. And they were all the properties were not positively cash flowing either. So they were purely based on speculation of the ability to resell them later. 
because if you can't resell them, you're going to have a negative cash flow that you can't afford to pay. And people were just speculating and speculating and getting more and more mortgages. And that was just driving the prices sky high artificially. People could not afford to pay for those houses on a regular qualification setup. And the other thing that happened, which the movie The Big Short goes into, which is a great one to watch for this, is that when those loans to all of those very unqualified people that were going to reset and they wouldn't be able to pay them eventually, when they were packaged and sold on the mortgage-backed securities market, there was a lot of misrepresentation about how safe and secure some of those loans were and all of this kind of stuff. And then eventually, you know, the mortgage loans reset and everything kicked in. The housing prices fell. People couldn't sell it for a gain. They couldn't cash flow positively. And then, of course, we had the you know, entire tsunami of the foreclosure crisis and everything else that people know about and the total global economic collapse. But, you know, I think it's really important to make those distinctions between that versus what's happening now. And so, you know, now, as you mentioned, people have been taking out these 30-year principal and interest fixed rate loans. They've had to pass much higher qualifications per the Dodd-Frank Act and so forth for these loans. And so now, really, one of the major risks, Chaley, that people are seeing at the moment, you know, when this whole COVID-19 thing broke out is what if the tenants all of a sudden, you know, there's a high unemployment spike and all of a sudden they can't pay the mortgage and when they passed the CARES Act, the stimulus bill, they did put a provision in there. And I want to ask you about this one for mortgage loan forbearance, right? So if your tenant is not able to pay you the rent, the CARES Act said that those owners can apply for mortgage forbearance so that they too would not have to pay their mortgage payment thereby preventing foreclosures and things of that nature. But how has that actually shaken out in reality? And what types of you know cautions or potential consequences should people be aware of around that mortgage forbearance option? So, uh, yeah, I'm very happy that we're talking about this. I'm really trying to get the word out as much as possible about this forbearance and having the conversation multiple times a day. So thank you for asking. So Matt, first of all, I want to be clear about forbearance there's still some confusion. Forbearance is not forgiveness, okay? This is a deferment of your mortgage payment, just that it's on pause. You put your mortgage on pause, you haven't made any payments, but they will. Whatever months you don't make your mortgage payment on, those monies will be due in some form or fashion. We can get into that in a second. I want to start by mentioning how unintended consequences Okay, the federal government, in all of their intention to support and help the United States of America citizens of this great country, didn't very clearly, at least as far as I'm concerned, as it relates to this forbearance piece, demonstrate or define what this needs to be. First of all, no hardship is required to prove to qualify for a for forbearance, which in my mind is, is probably the biggest of all of the offenses here. The moral hazard that it has created and will probably continue to create, uh, talk about unintended consequences, is going to reach far and deep into the mortgage sector of this country, into the economic. I mean, it's going to have a much bigger impact than most people realize. So there's that. You just simply have to attest. That's all that is required, saying that, yes, I've been affected by this COVID. Give me a forbearance. That's it. That's all you have to do. The second thing that they're saying is that it will not affect the individual's credit. Well, that's true, and it's almost not true. Let me explain. 
the servicer will not report any mortgage lates for that mortgage, right? So the repositories are not going to get information. Repositories are Equifax, TransUnion, Experian. They're not going to be reporting the mortgages as late. However, it will stipulate on that trade line, right, where that mortgage is listed on your credit report, that it's in forbearance or it'll show the word deferment, okay? Three of the biggest lenders in the nation have already started to rewrite underwriting guidelines to stipulate that the individual that shows this on a trade line is not eligible for conventional financing for as many as four years, some two years, some four years. So the casualty of that, I think, is going to be very impactful. And most people that I talk to are unaware of this when they enter into the forbearance. Lastly, I would just say, if you're considering this, be clear with the servicer what the repayment terms are. Earlier on, we were hearing a lot of talk that there would be a lump sum payment, which seems insane to me. If you truly can't afford the mortgage payment, but then after three or four months, they're expecting you to come up with the whole entire three, four, five, seven thousand dollars, <laughs> whatever. But so whether it's that, it's a second lien mortgage that they put on the property for the unpaid mortgage payments that were missed, uh, some sort of modification where they spread out that amount over a year, two years, or the remaining term of your loan, or maybe most simply, and seems most reasonable to me they add it to the back end of the loan so that when you go to refinance or sell, that's when that amount will become due and payable. Yeah, there's just quick. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Two cents on the, the four. Oh, there are no interest or penalties either. I can confirm that too, Matt. Okay, so that's really good information. So anybody that's interested in applying for a mortgage loan forbearance needs to look into those details and understand with their servicer, you know, what those potential consequences are for doing that. And then they can make an informed decision about whether or not it's worth it or it's not worth it, given, you know, their ability to cover the mortgage or not. Chili, and how long is the mortgage forbearance period given to the borrower? So the servicer, the way that that it's been written within the CARES Act, um, there's a guideline or a guidance. The servicer, I think, is ultimately the one that's going to determine. But I believe six months, 180 days, with a provision that says that you could get up to another six months beyond that. So I think a maximum of 12 months. But I've had clients call and say that their their servicer provided three months or four months. So somewhere in between that is, is what they can expect. It's going to be different per servicer. 
Okay. Now let's talk about people that want to buy rental properties right now. And what are the guidelines for qualifications for mortgages? And let's just start with the broad picture. Chaley, can you talk about the concept of the 10 golden tickets and talk about what happens after your first four mortgages and all of that within today's context? Because you know, we at Maverick Invest Group have clients that are, you know, just coming in the door. They might own one property, they might own a primary residence, but they're ready to start building their real estate portfolio. So talk to us about what that looks like in terms of qualifications and how it works. Sure. So as you mentioned, 10, we call them the golden tickets, right? Highest leverage, lowest interest rate on the planet. The first thing I would say, uh, especially for maybe a husband and wife team or partnership, if you can qualify individually, instead of now you've got, instead of having 10 joint, you've now got potentially 20 golden tickets between you. That's something that we always try to start with for our clients because it's not always an obvious thing. Okay, 10 golden tickets. So there are two very distinct underwriting books, let's call them, that we have to adhere to when we're talking about underwriting an investment property loan. The first book is going to be applicable to spots in one through six, actually. And then the second set of guidelines that we subscribe to are seven, eight, nine, and 10. Okay. Lots of variables that go into underwriting a loan, and in particular, our investment loan. But the top three things that are being scrutinized or looked at are going to be credit score, the middle credit score. Most people have three. We're going to take the middle credit score, assets, and then debt to income ratio. And depending on what number of finance property you're actually going to fall in, it's going to define for us, you know, what the definition is for what's required, credit score, assets, debt to income ratio. So let's just start with credit score. And some of this is unique to right now. Okay. Before all of this happened, I can say that the credit score, middle credit score for one through six didn't really have a minimum, right? As long as you had compensating factors, low debt to income or strong assets, I've seen 640 credit scores get approved, okay? As of today, we're going to need a 680 or better credit score to qualify in any one of the the one through six loan spots. And the seven through 10 has remained unchanged. That's a 720 or greater credit score to qualify. Assets. So assets are a little bit tricky. I have a, a worksheet too, Matt, if it's helpful to distribute somehow to your listeners, you can maybe put it online. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes, Chaley. So everything that we discuss here that you want to reference, we will add a direct link to it for the show notes of this episode. So folks can just go to themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for the Chaley Ridge episode, and whatever you want to talk about now, we'll just link up right there. Perfect. So this is straight from Fannie Freddie guidelines, okay? So you can refer back to this. I'm going to kind of go fast, but it's a little complicated. So the reserve requirement is what I'm talking about. So when we talk about assets, you've got your down payment, right? Your down payment and closing costs, et cetera. Those are liquid funds. The reserve requirement is something that we need to show on paper in order to qualify an individual. The reserves can be in liquid or non-liquid form. Applicable non-liquid form is going to be your retirement accounts, your 401k, your self-directed IRA, whole life insurance policies, et cetera. But what we need to see there, the subject property, Okay, the property that you're refinancing or the property that you're purchasing must be able to show six months worth of that PITI, again, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. Let's call it $1,000 a month. Okay, so $6,000 there plus a percentage of the unpaid principal balance of the rental properties only. Okay, those percentages change as the number of finance properties increases. They are two, four, and six percent. 
The 2% applies to loans that are going to fall in one through four. The 4% is going to apply to, to loans five and six. And then lastly, seven through 10 is going to take 6% of the unpaid principal balance of the rental property. So let me give you an example. Let's assume that we're purchasing property number 10, okay? But property number one is your primary residence in, in our example. Now, while that property finance will count as the number of finance properties, it will not count in the calculation using its unpaid principal balance. It only counts as the number as one of 10, okay? But in loan spots two through nine, we're going to say that each one of those holds an outstanding principal balance of $100,000. So we've got $800,000 of unpaid principal balance there, right? Times 6% is what? $48,000. Property number 10 is our subject property. And we've determined that that's $6,000, P-I-T-I, six months. So now, given that scenario, $48,000, $6,000, $54,000 would be the reserve requirement in that example. So that's assets. And I'll, like I said, all of that is, is very well detailed and spelled out straight from Fannie Freddie guidelines. I'll, I'll send that over to you after we're done here. Now, debt to income ratio. The threshold is 50%. Okay. Anybody that has not a 700 or greater credit score cannot have higher than a 45% debt to income ratio. Now, this is new. It's one of the kind of added enhanced guidelines that we're working under given the current economic environment. But otherwise, if you have a 700 or greater credit score, you can take your debt to income ratio to 50%, keeping in mind without going too far down the calculation of DTI, because it's going to be different for everybody, wage earner, self-employed, et cetera. But important to mention that the rental income of the property that we're securing, we can use that in qualifying, depending on some variables. Normally, we can give the individual 75% of the gross rents to offset that new mortgage payment. I'll give you another quick example. Let's say that the gross rents are $1,000 a month and the new mortgage payment is going to be $500 a month. So 75% of my $1,000, I get $750 of income. From that, I have to take away the $500 of PITI, new mortgage payment, leaving us with what? A $250 positive, right? So the 250 positive now goes into the income column when we recalculate the DTI to include this new property. So just think about that for one second, okay? We've totally eliminated that new mortgage payment and we've increased the individual's income higher now to what it was before. So in reality, the debt to income ratio went down. It's lower as a result of purchasing this property. Now, whether the positive from that formula is a dollar or $250 to my example, depends on the property and the market, et cetera. But what I can share is that post the 0809 crash, I've never run that scenario, that formula, and seen it produce a negative number. So that applies in the acquisition year. Okay. Once it falls on the individual schedule, the formula changes. I'm not even going to try to get into that right now, but acquisition year formula will be to your advantage. That's awesome. So basically, the more rental properties you buy, as long as they're positively cash flowing rental properties, then that's going to improve your debt to income ratio and actually improve your qualifications for the next loan that you get. In the acquisition year, yes. Let me let me define acquisition year real quick. But the answer to your question is yes. So acquisition year means from the day that you purchase the property up until it'll fall on a schedule e. example. You purchase a property January of 2020, and you know for sure you're going to file an extension. Okay, October of 2021, 
So between January this year and October 2021 next year is how long in that example you'd get to use that acquisition year formula. Once the property lands on the Schedule E, the formula changes and you should be prepared that the benefit that you're going to get over here that we just went over, acquisition year formula, generally is going to be a negative number once it falls on that Schedule E, at least for the first few years of ownership until it stabilizes. Okay. Got it. But now your company, though, Chaley, you can strategize with the clients about this, of course, because this is what you do. And we do the same thing here at Maverick. So, you know, Maverick Investor Group, when our clients come in and they want to build a portfolio of rental properties, we talk them through this strategy, right? So if there's someone that qualifies for conventional mortgages in the U.S., they're able to get those first 10 mortgages, right? To buy their first 10 properties, 10 golden tickets, as you're calling them. And you can also strategize with that client to structure their acquisitions based on their personal financing in such a way that, you know, that they can process through that process smoothly, right? Yeah. And in fact, I would say, Matt, if, the, if we have a, a real value add to us, it's that it's the education and that strategy piece, teaching our clients how to optimize those qualifications for the long term, understanding their goals and saying, leading them you know, right down the path. Here's exactly what you need to do to reach this goal. And like you said earlier, giving them the information so they're making informed decisions. Right. And now in terms of qualifications. I have two follow-up questions. Regarding the assets, can people use the money that's in their retirement accounts for the asset qualifications? And then with respect to the income qualifications, if somebody is not a W-2 employee who's a wage earner, but instead perhaps they're self-employed, they're a business owner, or maybe they're just an investor that's living entirely off of their rental income because they're financially free, what do those income qualifications look like? How are those different? Sure. So the assets, yes, absolutely. The retirement accounts are absolutely qualified to satisfy the reserve requirement. The one thing that I would mention is, is that we're always going to ask for the terms of withdrawal on the asset. So as a let's just use 401k as the most common. If the 401k stipulates within the terms of withdrawal that you can only have one loan at a time out, Let's say you've got a $100,000 face value or asset, 401k asset, but you have a $5,000 loan still left outstanding on it. The other $95,000 is inadmissible until that five grand is paid back if you can only have one loan at a time. So just think about that. Your terms of withdrawal will be asked for, but so long as it's within right to access the rest of the asset, yes, you can use that to satisfy reserves. Self-employed people. So, you know, everybody's circumstances are inherently going to be different in how they're filing. And I know that for myself, I'm going to maximize every damn cent I can and writing off as much as I can and, and limiting the amount of dollars I have to bring in for, for taxes. That said, I want to be clear about it's not as much about the income, right, that the individual can show is as it is the income in relation to that individual's monthly debt monthly debt found on their credit report. Okay. A lot of people mistakenly assume that ordinary expenses, monthly expenses like utilities, cell phone, food, entertainment, gas, somehow play a role in debt to income ratio and they don't. It's really going to be almost exclusively to the credit report and those minimum monthly payments. So even if you're self-employed and you only show $20,000 a year of income, as long as your monthly liabilities are supportive to not max out beyond 50%, that's perfectly fine. Beyond that, I would say that 
if you are very aggressive as a self-employed individual and writing off everything, we know underwriting guidelines are extremely well-defined for us and we know them like the back of our hands. So we don't impose overlays, which is also important to mention, meaning that Fannie Freddie publishes this underwriting guideline for us. We're not going to impose layers of risk and add into what the guidelines already say. We're going to take it straight face value of what they've said is required. So we understand how to navigate the battleship in a creek. We know what we can add back in. We know what we can't. And a lot of times I find that an individual self-employed specifically was denied at a big boy bank, Wells or Chase, whatever, um, were able to get them qualified because of Wells Fargo might have an overlay. Maybe they didn't give them the depreciation or they couldn't add back the repairs for the year on the Schedule E or whatever it might be. We're able to do things that I find others can't. Beyond any of that, it starts in and becomes a strategy work, right? So if they come to me and there's just no feasible way to get them qualified today on a go-forward basis, we, we show them how to get qualified. So we ask our clients more often than not, if they're interested in qualifying in any given year, not to file federal tax returns until they've sent us a draft version first. So looking at it before they ring the bell, we can give them some tangible advice on what they may need to do to optimize qualification. Awesome. And let me ask you this. A lot of folks know that they want to hold their rental properties in an LLC for asset protection purposes. But in order to qualify for conventional mortgage, you need to close on the property as an individual and take the loan in your individual name. What's the best way for people to navigate that and you know hold their properties in an LLC? How does that work? So this is another hot topic. I'm having this question several times a week. I'll start by saying that every single one of my properties has always been held in an LLC. Single member LLC, that detail, single member is important. I'll come back to it. But first, let me explain. Every set of conventional loan documents currently include language that's called the due on sale clause. Many of you listening may have heard of this. What it says is that you do not intend, the word intend is there, and I kind of think that's the operative intent. You do not intend to change title ownership and that if you do, the lender can exercise this due on sale. Let's define due on sale. This is a scary way of saying that you'd be forced to refinance that loan at your expense. Okay, they're not going to show up at your house with handcuffs. They're certainly not going to levy your bank accounts. But I, I, I would assume that we agree that the cost of a refinance is more than enough incentive. We want to avoid it. Okay, so... With all of that said, and like I shared, I've done this myself by executing what's called a quit claim deed, Q-U-I-T claim deed. Sometimes, depending on the state, you'll hear it called a warranty deed. But I've executed this instrument hundreds of times over the years, whereby transferring from my individual name into that single member LLC. I've never had any issues with a due on sale. Likewise, I can also confirm that in 20 one, 22 years, the tens of thousands of investors that I've worked with, I've known of them doing the same thing. It has never been brought to my attention that any of them has had an issue with the due on sale. But before I'm able to put this into perspective, let me cover my backside, Matt. I'm not an attorney. I'm certainly not capable of giving legal advice. You're still going to be signing a legal document that says you don't intend to do this. Okay. With that out of the way, let me share with you from my perspective, what my experience has been. A couple of things, a couple of statements that we would have to agree are truthful statements before the following commentary is going to be relevant. One of which is this. 
for any institution, any entity to execute a due on sale, we'd have to agree. They'd have to get everybody that has done it. They couldn't make an example out of one single individual, right? Joe Smith executed a quick claim, put the property into a single member LLC, but they're going to leave everybody else that's done it alone, right? Class action lawsuit. No way. They'd have to get everybody. Assuming that we agree on that statement, then the follow-up to that would be the entity actually had the manpower and the resources to accomplish some such a thing. They don't. I can tell you just plain out, they don't. But if they did, here's what that would look like. They would do probably a minimum 24-month chain of title search and, and probably more, three, four, five-year chain of title search. And what that means is, is they're going to have to go and scrub every single county in every city in every state of the United States and pull a national data tape of residential property, single family to four unit that are held in an LLC name. Okay. They're going to take this national data tape and they're going to cross reference it with their own holdings, right? So now they've got their master list. And what are we saying that they're going to do now with this master list of performing assets that are held in an LLC? Are we saying that they're going to call all of those performing assets due and payable? I think it's highly unlikely. However, let's say that I'm wrong. Let's say that I have no idea what I'm talking about and that this happens all the time. I can confirm for those listening, it is a bankruptcy judge that would hear such a case. Okay. Uh, And here's where that single member comes in. I have a very difficult time believing that in the courtroom with a big conglomerate B of A and Joe Smith and his attorney that the judge is going to rule in the favor of the the big banking institution because Mr. Smith decided to take his title ownership from his individual name and put it into his single member LLC. It is Joe Smith. It's a pass-through. There's no collusion going on there. So I would just kind of maybe leave the commentary about LLC there. Those have been my experiences. That's what I think. If an individual tried to put the, the property into a multiple member LLC, and the other member was not a spouse and or not on the loan with Joe Smith, potentially that could be problematic. Uh, In that case, you've actually changed the asset's ownership. And, you know, that maybe that that causes more of a problem. I've not heard of it, but I think that if there's going to be any added risk to what I've already said, that would increase it. That's really good to know. So single member LLCs are really important in this respect. Jaylee, let me ask you one more question and then we'll move into the lightning round and wrap this up. I have heard you mention the possibility that this incredibly unique 30-year fixed principal and interest loan could possibly disappear in 2021. And if that were a possibility, it might make a lot of sense for people that want to lock these things in to lock them in in 2020. Can you share with us why that might happen in 2021 and what people need to know to make those decisions if they want to start locking them in now? Sure. So we briefly talked about Dodd-Frank. Within Dodd-Frank, as related to the mortgage industry, there was something called QM, that stands for Qualified Mortgage, and the Ability to Repay, or ATR. Within those specific guidelines, there were debt-to-income ratio thresholds, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, initially the way it was written would have taken half of the borrowing community in the country and disqualified them from getting mortgages. 
So without getting into too much of that detail, I will just tell you that very quickly after the legislation was created, there was something else created called a QM patch that has been in place. And at the time that it was written, it came with an expiration date, which happens to be January of 2021. If the QM patch expires the way that it's set to, and to further clarify, everybody in the White House right now within the FHFA, within the CFPB, uh, all of the Trump-appointed individuals, they will absolutely just let the the patch expire because what's going to happen with that is it will also cancel the conservatorship of Fannie Freddie, which is no secret. Everybody is aware. Trump and Mark Calabria, FHFA director, they don't want Fannie and Freddie established as a conservatorship. They want them privatized. If this happens, like I mentioned earlier in our conversation, and Fannie and Freddie are not there in that space, right? And it opens up to the secondary market and Wall Street. There is not an investor on the planet, as far as I'm concerned, that is going to sell 30-year fixed mortgages at the rates we've become accustomed to. An adjustable rate mortgage is going to be mainstream again because the interest rates will be anywhere from a point to two points lower than what a 30-year fixed is pricing at. Since the crash, we've been on, on a sort of inverted yield, especially for investment properties, where an arm actually rates out higher than a fixed. If the patch goes away, that's going to reverse and an adjustable rate mortgage or an arm are going to be the traditional one to two points lower than a 30-year fixed. You will not find a 30-year fixed mortgage in the three, fours or 5% if and when that happens. Now, I think given what we've been through in the last two and a half months, I'm not sure I agree that even if the Republicans keep the White House, I'm not sure that they'll allow that thing to expire the way they would have absolutely done before this whole coronavirus fiasco. Well, I guess we'll just have to to wait and see. Got it. Got it. But definitely there will be some uncertainty about the future of the 30-year fixed rate mortgage product post-election, depending on who wins and who's in the White House. There will definitely be uncertainty about what will happen. So folks know that at least between now and then, they can get this product under the qualification guidelines that you talked about. All right, Chaley, are you ready now to move in to the lightning round? I've been sweating this for the last hour and eight minutes, Matt. Bring it. (laughs) I'm excited for your answers. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you'd recommend people check out? So although I'm highly tied to technology and uh, very grateful for all the speed and efficiency and ease that it gives us, I resist a lot of it, especially social media and stuff. So I don't use or utilize uh, some of that stuff as much as I should. I would say the one that I could think about, MyFitnessPal is the one that I use. I guess if I look at my phone on Apple, you can look at your, your productivity or your usage stuff. Yeah, MyFitnessPal. Awesome. All right, Chaley, if you could have dinner with any person that's currently alive today that you've never met, who would you choose and why? I'm going to say Oprah Winfrey. And the reason, you know, if you've never heard her story, the great strife and everything that that woman went through as a young girl, a very young girl and uh, adolescent, 
to pull herself out of those circumstances and create the empire that she's created with such class. And she's just an inspiration to me. And so articulate and warm. I I think she is an amazing human being. And I would like to just be in her presence for five minutes, let alone an entire dinner. Awesome. If you could go back in time, knowing everything that you know now, all the lessons that you've learned in life, and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Chaley? Yes, I've got this one, I think. I think I would have said I would have trusted my own instincts more often on the occasion when I've looked back on decisions that I've made, right or wrong, and I really try not to have regret. But, you know, there's always going to be circumstances where you have other people in your ear or providing their feedback that is usually well intended. Uh, I feel like my instincts overall, because I was the one really in business and what was happening in my life at the time, the most invested, right? And I, I feel like a lot of times we second guess ourselves when we shouldn't. Our instincts are usually right on. Every time that I ignored that inner voice, I was wrong. Awesome. All right, Chaley, I want you to let folks know how they can contact Ridge Lending, how they can get in touch with you to start setting up their mortgage acquisition strategy, and maybe share a little bit about what the customer experience will be like working with Ridge. What can people expect and how do they get to you? Yeah, so I'll, I'll end with how to contact us. I'm, I'm actually glad you asked that. Uh, we do things a little bit differently in that uh, our prequal process is pretty front-loaded. Some people are surprised by this. Prequal process with Ridge is quite intensive. Now, there's a few reasons that we do it this way. It's really 20 years of trial and error. The first reason is, is that the transactions, and I say transactions with an S, because most investors are not going to just do or, or stop with one transaction. They're going to buy, sell, refi, 1030 exchange, etc. But the transactions themselves become a foregone conclusion right? Really front-loading that prequal process. We know exactly how these loans are going to play from inception to closing, no extra unnecessary brain damage. Okay. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is what most people probably care about. Once we have the bones or the template of your file, we don't have to recreate it every single time. We will have to refresh expired documents, pay stubs, bank statements, you know, the things that renew But otherwise, you know, we have that template on file and we don't have to take you back through the gauntlet every single time. But there's that. Beyond the prequal, that's when oftentimes I will get that one-on-one with my clients and start talking about that deeper education, strategy, sequencing, and and goals and such. That's really where where I'll come in. I like that part. And then lastly, how you can reach us a couple ways. You can check out our website, ridgelendinggroup.com. You can call us toll-free, 855-74-RIDGE. 855-747-4343, or you can email us at info at ridgelendinggroup.com. And then, Chaley, when folks come in and do the pre-qualification process with you, you'll then be able to let them know what their interest rate would be that they'd qualify for, what a you know what their closing cost would look like, give them a good faith estimate or a fee sheet, and then walk them through that if they have any questions about what are these different charges for and everything, so they can really get a clear financial picture on you know what their loan is going to look like and what the fees and terms are going to be. Is that right? Yeah. And in fact, we actually try to do that before we take them through the gauntlet because it's a lot, right? The paperwork and the extraction of documents, et cetera. 
So oftentimes what will happen is, is that we do start with a fee sheet, whether it's an example fee sheet, if they don't know where they're purchasing or if they're refinancing, whatever, or if it's specific to a property. Yeah, they'll get an idea. Conservatively, we always are going to pad third-party fees. We don't have those yet. So keep that in mind when you're looking at the quote. We're not going to be the lender that overpromises, underdelivers. In fact, quite the opposite. We tend to be pretty conservative on those first look quotes. But yeah. Awesome. Well, we are going to link that up in the show notes, folks. You can just go to one place at the com. Go to the Chaley Ridge episode and all the links will be there on how you can contact Chaley and pre-qualify and get all of your information as well as your strategy on how to start getting your 10 golden tickets and uh, develop a strategy to build your rental property portfolio with Ridge. Chaley, awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Matt. I enjoyed myself. Thanks for having me. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.